Well, it's uh, great to be with you all uh, today and uh, to share this time with you. Before we get into um, the passage, before we uh, speak about that this morning, I just wanted to uh, front end uh, the talk today by just acknowledging that within our church family, we do have, in particular, um, three um, households, if you like, that will have been hugely impacted and affected by uh, the death of George Floyd um, and all the events that have arisen out of it. And, you know, we might think a number of different things. We might express differently how that feels. For most of us, we simply don't have the capacity to understand uh, because we are protected simply by the fact that we're white. And um, so we wanted to acknowledge this in the sense that, you know, there are those in our church family who would have been hugely impacted by this. One in particular has been through some horrific abuse um, and, and, you know, experienced her, her, uh, awful uh, racism. And um, with everything that has happened over the last few weeks, uh, we wanted just to acknowledge that while we may feel um, powerless or that there's not a lot that we can practically do, perhaps um, we recognize that the God of hope, who is also the God of peace, uh, can transform uh, this situation. And so I just want to pray uh, into this situation that is uh, affecting our world right now, uh, that the God of peace himself, who is the father of every human being, uh, and who hates to see his children fighting, uh, will come and transform this situation. So let's just pray now. Heavenly Father, we come before you and bring this situation that has come to the fore over the last few weeks. And we ask that you, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, would come and release peace in this situation. We long for the day where we can truly live as brothers and sisters together, no matter what our background or culture. And we pray where uh, the world seems to be so good at tearing itself apart and beating itself up. We pray, God of peace, would you transcend the pain the confusion, the injustice. And would you bring peace and transformation to a situation that feels uh, just so volatile uh, for obvious reasons. And so we bring it before you and we invite you, Father, come and have your way. May your children truly reflect who you are and all those who are image bearers. May we align ourselves with the truth that we are your children and treat each other with dignity, with respect, and with love. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we um, want to get now into um, the passage. And um, as we do that, the first thing I wanted to ask is, have you ever been stuck in the middle? Have you ever been either caught in the crossfire uh, or stuck in the middle of a situation? I can think of one time where I worked for a different church and we went on a, a staff retreat. This is some years ago now. We went on a staff retreat. There were, I think, about 10 staff um, at the time. And we were sitting in this room at a place not too far from here that some of you will know called the Oast Houses. And we were sitting in this room having a sort of a staff moment where we were talking about sort of some of the things that had cropped up in the staff team where, you know, perhaps we needed some help unlocking a few things. And out of nowhere, two individuals in, in the room started just going for each other. One had become really offended with the other and, and she just got so volatile and angry at the, the injustice that she had experienced from this other individual uh, on the staff team. And right in front of us, these guys blew up and had a full-blown shouting argument. It was like so unlike Christian. And so like, we were sitting there going, oh, what's going on? And, um, and it ended with this um, lady charging out of the room and slamming the door. The room shook. And we all sat there going, oh, what just happened? It was so awkward. We didn't really know quite what to say, uh, what to do. The person that she was angry with was still in the room. And, it, you know, he was clearly like, whoa. And uh, there was some merit in what she had said. And uh, we had, you know, recognized that. But none of us kind of knew what to do in that moment. It was awkward. It was difficult. And none of us really felt we had the right thing to say. And at the time, I wasn't the vicar. There was a, another chap who was the vicar. He kind of uh, led us from that moment uh, into, you know, moving towards reconciliation in that particular moment. But it was so awkward. And being caught in the crossfire when you're nothing to do with it is so awkward. I want to ask you, can you think of a time where you've been caught in the crossfire? Or you've been, you know, the gooseberry in the room, the one that this wasn't about, but you experienced two, three, four, however many people it was, absolutely going for it in terms of shouting or whatever it might be. And you're caught in the middle and you don't quite know how to react. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But what I want to do with... This uh, chapter we're looking at, Daniel chapter 11, when I read through it, I went, oh my gosh, there's so much in this chapter. Um, it, there's, you know, so much going on. And how do we unpick it to try to understand what actually is going on so that we can find some kind of kernel of truth as to uh, how we can apply this circumstance um, into our own daily situation? 
So what I want to do, because uh, perhaps you've read this whole chapter before, uh, we've come to meet this morning, perhaps you haven't, but I want to go through not every verse, but some of the verses to pull out uh, and highlight what is going on. So we heard James share last week very eloquently uh, about chapter 10, and Daniel is interacting with this angelic being. And some, the angel is telling him various things. And we find ourselves in chapter 11, um, at, uh, and this angel is, is carrying on. Sorry, I'm just trying to get my Bible open. I've got to switch it on because it's modern day, and it's not responding to my thumb. Here we go. We're in. And so uh, the passage starts with the angel continuing uh, to speak, and he says, "And as for me, in the first year of uh, Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him." This is the angel speaking, and then he says, verse two, "And now I will show you the truth." So here we have this angel speaking to Daniel. Daniel is a prophet, and the angel is speaking to him, and he has this prophetic vision that nobody else. Is seeing. They can feel the atmosphere, but they cannot see the angel. And the angel starts to, to speak to Daniel about the things that will unfold. And this is happening um, around uh, to the later stage of Daniel's life. So we're talking about 530 BC, around there, somewhere around there, um, that this is happening. But the events that he's speaking about are 150, 200 years later. And so let's just, we'll begin to unpack those. So, verses uh, 1 and 2, the uh, angel is speaking. He speaks of um, King Darius uh, in verse 2. He says that he talks about three kings. And then he says about a fourth king, which will be far richer that's King Darius III. And I just want to move on quickly to verse 3. It says, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. This is a, cha- a, tra- a change of kingdoms here. So we're moving from the kingdom of the Greeks and the Persians into the kingdom of Greece. And this king in verse 3 is Alexander the Great. Uh, the well-known warrior who uh, massively expanded uh, the Greek empire. And so verse 3 is about Alexander. And you know that before Alexander, Greece was divided. And then he came along and led it in such a way and got people behind him and they started conquering all these regions that uh, reach around the globe expanded in huge ways. But he died very young. Alexander died at the age of 32. And um, he uh, it's not entirely known why he died. Some people think he was poisoned. Some people think he died of a virus. Um, we're not quite sure. But he died young. And after he died, um, uh, he didn't have any children. His wife at the time was pregnant. Um, but he didn't have children. Um, and so his half-brother, Philip... Uh, was there, but you know, uh, he was appointed king, and after there was some power play going on, and after the baby was born, the baby was technically king, 
Um, but uh, Philip was kind of, uh, you know, doing the adult thing. Um, but that didn't work. It just didn't work. And there was a power play that went on. And you'll read in verse 4, As soon as he has arisen, Alexander, his kingdom shall be broken and divided. He died, and his kingdom became divided almost instantly. And then it says, towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So what this means is the four winds are the four generals, the four most powerful generals under Alexander, came up and took, you know, divided up the kingdom into four areas. That's what happened. And they started to rule. But two of those kingdoms became stronger. So the four winds are these four kings, these four kind of um, generals. And they basically created these dynasties. Um, And, you know, the family line followed through from these four generals for some time as the Greeks ruled um, at that time in the ancient Near East. But it was not to his posterity because Daniel's son did not, um, sorry, not Daniel, uh, Alexander's son did not rule. It wasn't his lineage. So that's what's going on. Now, bear in mind, these are prophetic words coming from the angel to Daniel. And they are coming true to a level of accuracy which is unparamounted. It's phenomenal, the level of accuracy. Um, So uh, that's uh, verse 4. And just to say that really there was all this power play that goes on in chapter 11 uh, and happened in the Greek Empire. And... The, the, the dominant forces were the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was Syria, and that became this huge dynasty. And the southern kingdom was Egypt, which became this other dynasty. And they became these, this sort of power play. And you hear as you go through the chapter, the king of the north rise up against the king of the south and then later the king of the south will rise up against the king of the north and there's this interplay of power going on who's gonna you know win more land from the other and uh, effectively what happened was it uh, became about these two kingdoms and the others uh, uh, diminished and so there's this constant conflict between the north and the south And in verse 6, it says, After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he, his arm, shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. Well, what happened is in 250 B.C., Um, The king of the south sought peace with the king of the north, and so he uh, offered the king of the north his daughter in marriage. That's what happened in Greek history. Um, But the king of the north was married already, so he had in mind to divorce his wife, and uh, and they had a child. And the king of uh, sorry, the his wife, the king of the north's wife, was angry. So she arranged for um, this new wife to be poisoned and for the king of the north to be poisoned, and which is why um, 
in the Bible here, it says, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. She was poisoned. She was killed. And he and his arm shall not endure. The king of the north was poisoned and killed by his own first wife. Um, and here it's, it's written in the prophecy. And it comes true, almost word for word. It's, it's uncanny. And of course, the king of the south tried to uh, unite and, and work together. But it just ended up in more power play. And uh, verses 7 and 8, um, it, it carries on. Um, and from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. And um, that's uh, the new... Um, so the, the poisoned daughter who avenges... Um, sorry. The brother of the poisoned daughter avenges the death of his sister... Um, and uh, he becomes the new um, king of the south. And uh, because he wants to avenge his sister's death, he's like, I ain't having peace. And so this cycle of battles continues. This power play continues. And then up right on through the chapter, we see this power play uh, between these two, uh, effectively, these two dynasties. And the angel is prophesying it all. And the level of accuracy with historical uh, reality is, uh, is huge. It's so accurate. And then I want to jump down to verse 21. Um, and in verse 21, it says this. Um, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Now, this is about a very well-known king whose name was Antiochus IV. And he was the most contemptible individual. He was vile. And um, what had happened is the true heir to the throne was in prison in Rome, and so he paid his way to become uh, the king of the south. And he paid off the people in power um, so that he could then rule. And so he took the throne by underhand means, by flatteries, as it says there in, in verse 21. And so this is about Antiochus IV uh, taking the throne and paying off those people. And then if we jump down uh, to verse 27, and it says this, and as for the two kings, their hearts, this is the king of the, uh, the south and the king of the north. Um, and so Antiochus is the king of the north, the Syrian kingdom. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They will speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. So we see these two kings bent on doing evil. Let's jump to verse 29. That's the start of our reading today. At the time appointed, he shall return. This is Antiochus. He shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. This is because the Romans 
expanding their own kingdom and they have aligned with the southern kingdom and are adding strength to it. So when we read in verse 30, for ships of Kittim shall come against him, that's the, the Roman army coming in on ships and um, Antiochus, who's this powerful king, is like, I can't take on the Roman Empire. So he retreats and withdraws. And so it says in verse 29, uh, he'll return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, because the Roman Empire are coming in. The Roman generals, the Roman army are coming in, and they're going to overtake uh, this um, uh, Greek empire with Roman rule and custom. And so that's the sort of context that we find ourselves in. And in, Antiochus is enraged by this. He is so angry and he is a vile man. And so we read in verse 30 from the, the reading um, we had earlier, and it's obviously it's just the next verse. It says here, um, after the ships have come, and it says, uh, he will turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. So Antiochus is like, I'm going to punish the, the, the God of Israel. I'm going to punish the people of the Holy Covenant, the Jews, because of this. And so that's what he does. And if we read on... Um, uh, what happens is, how does Antiochus do this? He starts to plunder the city of Jerusalem uh, and he sends in his tax collector who does this plundering. And what he does is he, uh, he goes into um, uh, the temple. So verse 31, it says, Forces from him, that's his tax collector, shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress, it says, that pertain the temple and fortress. It was one, one space on the temple mount. And shall take away the regular burnt offering. So they took away the sacrifices of the Jews and they dedicated the altars to Zeus. That's what was going on here. And that's why it says, they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Antiochus is doing something vile in the eyes of the king of kings, vile to the people of the Israel. It's a defilement of the greatest, most disgusting way possible. And he starts to sacrifice pigs on these altars that have been dedicated to Yahweh. Now you need to remember, let's remember that how did the people of Israel think about their God? They thought of him as being in the Holy of Holies. The most holy place was behind the veil and it's where God himself resided on the Ark of the Covenant, on, you know, sitting on, if you like, the, uh, the um, mercy seat, which is these sort of angelic beings that are sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant like this. And that's the holy, of the, place, the holy of the Holies, where God dwelt. And into that environment, Antiochus brings these defiled creatures, pigs that the Jews had to have nothing to do with. He brings them in and sacrifices them on these holy altars. It's an anathema to the kingdom of God. 
And that's why he's known as a contemptible person. So that's kind of uh, the background to what is going on here. Um, And so uh, we've read about that. That's verse 31, just catching up with myself on my notes because I don't want to miss anything. Um, And then we get to verse 32. And this is really one of the only places in Daniel 11 where we read something that we can grasp and take away that feels, you know, good and positive, something that will uh, land for us. And it's this. Um, uh, It starts not great, but you'll see where we're going. So verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. So that's Antiochus. These people, uh, those who violate the covenant, are the Israelites who are struggling to resolve being Jews with the customs that they are forced to being made to live under, under the Greek empire. And, um, and they're trying to work this out. Do I, uh, you know, forget my God who seems to be absent in this period of time? Do I forget all of that in my heritage and align myself with the powers that be, or do I stay strong? And of course, Antiochus flatters, uh, which means he basically you know, rewards those who turn away from the covenant. Um, but it says, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Some stood firm against this uh, stuff that was going on and they died as martyrs. They died as martyrs both under Antiochus and under the Roman rule depending on which part of the empire they were in, which part of the uh, land they were in at the time. And what happened was there were those who stood up to it and were martyred and there were those who uh, took action and, and it was called um, the Maccabean Revolt. And uh, that basically restored control of Judea um, to the Jews. And they took control back of, of uh, the temple. And uh, over the next 200 years, um, this kingdom grew. Not hugely, but we started to see an emergence of three kingdoms rather than two. Um, and that really takes us up to uh, the end of the passage that we had today. Verse 35 speaks of how uh, persecution um, affects the people of God. And it says, and some of the wise shall stumble. That means those who are um, right with God being martyred. They will stumble through martyrdom or, you know, being killed in some way. Um, And then it talks... Uh, also about uh, in this it's a sort of doubled meaning that uh, they may be refined that they may be purified and made white until the time of the end and this is about the people of God and how they are you know um, sanctified through persecution how they are purified how they are made white how they are refined through this process of uh, persecution which is happening here um, in uh, 
to the people of Israel under this foreign rule. And uh, the verses 36 to the end of the chapter start to shift. And although in the, the passage it looks like it's Antiochus IV, we know that from what is said later on that actually the characters now changed. And this is speaking about the Antichrist who is still to come. And, and that's what the, the last part of chapter 11 is about. So it's taking us now to end time and end time theology. So that's uh, what's going on in the passage. I know it's a lot to take in and I've sort of wrapped up some history there to try to make sense of what is happening here. But I do want to sort of start to pull some of this stuff together. Now, there's a pattern that emerges throughout the book of Daniel and we see it throughout scripture. We see it first really with Cain and Abel. And um, you know the story, but Cain kills Abel because he's jealous. Because, you know, Cain gives an offering, but Abel's offering is of the first fruits. The, you know, it's, it's the best stuff and, and Cain's isn't. And so, you know, the father blesses Abel and Cain gets angry and this beastly reaction emerges doesn't it in Cain and he kills Abel and there's this beastly behavior which carries on through his descendants and um, uh, and, and it gets really evil and we start to see you know Cain's descendants are involved in the creation of Babel and and all of that um, but then when we read in Daniel, we read about the kings and effectively here's the pattern. Humans become violent beasts when they don't acknowledge God's kingdom. And it's a pattern we see throughout scripture, but it's particularly here in Daniel. It's in the visions that are given, the visions that Nebuchadnezzar has himself, the visions that Daniel has. That in the language that the angel speaks, we have these four beasts, don't we, which are the four kingdoms. You've got Assyria, you've got Babylon, you've got the Peds and the Mersians, and you, uh, Peds, sorry, I've got the, my, um, the Persians and the Medes, and, uh, and you've got um, the Greek Empire, the four beasts. But there's this language of beasts. And you know, when we read about Nebuchadnezzar in the first few chapters of Daniel, there comes a point, doesn't there, where he sort of goes out into the wilderness because he refuses God and he starts to develop like claws and his hair is all weird and he starts to physically look like a beast. And you know, it's a physical embodiment of a spiritual condition. And so we see this pattern emerge. When humans um, become, uh, they become violent beasts when they choose to uh, not acknowledge God's kingdom. And that's a pattern that we see emerge in a big way in the New Testament. Um, and so it's there in the dreams and the prophecies. We see it with Nebuchadnezzar. We see it with uh, Belshazzar. We see it with Darius, um, and then we see it with all the other kings mentioned in Daniel, particularly Antiochus IV. Um, but it's also true of all 19 kings of Israel's divided kingdom after David, when the kingdom divided. And um, 
you know, all 19 kings of Israel uh, went their own way and chose to do it without the Lord. And Judea, the other kingdom, there were uh, eight great kings and 12 terrible kings. And, and we see this pattern of beastliness emerge when people choose to go without God. And if we present that back into the passage today, what happens is you've got this kingdom in the south, um, the Egyptian kingdom, and you've got this kingdom in the north, the uh, kingdom of Syria, and these beastly kings. And what's happened is the people of Israel in, in their area are caught in the middle. And, you know, Judea and Palestine is caught in the middle of these power plays. And through it, they're oppressed because they're in, under captivity. Uh, they're in sort of exile, aren't they? Um, under this rule. And um, the angel has said that even though it was only going to be 70 years, it's going to continue because the people of God have not honoured the Lord. And it's going to go on for, you know, 400 years or so, um, basically up until Jesus comes. And there's this, um, you know, difficult period. They're caught in the middle. It's awkward. It's difficult. How do we... um, navigate our lives when we know our history but we haven't seen God move for however many hundreds of years it is two 200 300 years it, it feels like he's been silent how do we position ourselves under these beastly kings who are doing beastly things how do we position ourselves do we align so that we can live a life that's easier because it doesn't feel like God's coming through for us? Or do we stand firm? Do we hold to the truth? And it's difficult because the kings are bribing them with all sorts. Do this and I'll reward you. Well, when you're, you know, when you've got nothing, it's going to be much easier to be susceptible to the bribery of someone who has everything. So how do they position themselves when they're caught in the middle? It's a very difficult place to be. But here's the thing. We, as God's people today, are always caught in the middle. And it presents itself in different ways. If you read the history of Israel, so often... They are caught in the middle or, or even they're the, the absolutely the direct, you know, oppression is, is upon them. There are, of course, moments of victory throughout uh, Scripture. But very often, even in those victories, they're caught in the middle, either between slavery and the promised land um, or they're, you know, in the wilderness Um, the the pattern just keeps on happening, being caught in the middle. And today it's happening for us in a number of ways. We're caught in the middle between, you know, the emergence of Jesus bringing the, the fullness of the kingdom to earth so that we get to enact his kingdom on earth today. But it's not 100% yet fully, is it? We, We are seeking to experience that and for that to be our reality. 
But there are still those that don't get healed when we release healing. The fullness of the kingdom, you know, is not fully experienced and expressed in every area of the life of the church. And we're stuck in this period of time between the emergence of Jesus ushering his kingdom on earth and partnering with him to deliver it and to, um, to grow it and to extend it and to release heaven on earth. That's the mandate we have. And the second coming of Jesus, um, where the fullness of everything will come to be. And we are stuck in the middle of those two places. But we're not powerless. We have something, don't we, that, that enables us to live through that space, even if it's difficult. And, you know, in our society today, we see some of the stuff, the, the chaos that we see in Daniel chapter 11, we see it in our own world. I mentioned before, um, everything that's arisen out of the Black Lives Matter campaign and the death of uh, George Floyd, but, you know... Uh, for many people, it's the last straw, isn't it? And, and something has got to change. And systemic racism is still a problem. And so often, we as, you know, me as a white middle-class person has no idea of the struggle or the strain of my friends um, who, who are born, you know, black because that's their culture, their heritage, uh, and everything that's awesome and good with that, but so much story of pain and struggle that goes with it. I cannot relate because I have not been there. And as much as I try to sympathize and to understand, I live white privilege. And that means when I go uh, and drive too fast, let's say, the police will probably ignore me. Or if I uh, go into a shop which is really, um, you know, expensive, I probably won't get a second glance. I'll just be able to look around however I want. But I have friends who, you know, I ran a majority black church in London and they'd go into to shops um, and feel like they're being watched the whole time simply because they're black. You know, there is a systemic racism, and it's not just in America. It's right here in the UK. One of my friends suffered horrific abuse um, for, for being black in her work environment. Um, and, and that's around 20 years ago, but just vile things that happened, things that should not be happening in our day and age. And, you know, we like to distance ourselves from it, but it's part of the chaos in our world today and we don't have many families of that heritage in our church community but we do have some and you know guys we how much are we aware of the struggle and the strain I don't I'm going off on one now let's sorry I the point I'm trying to make is that there is chaos in our world things that are happening that should not be happening so um, you know, racism is a part of that. We can talk about COVID-19. Now, you know, however we feel about it, 
Now, there are so many theories, aren't there? There's so many ideas about what may or may not have happened, what is actually going on, what's happening behind the scenes that we don't know about. There's so much talk. There's so much gossip. There's so much, you know, we've put in in lockdown. There's so much chaos that's arisen out of it. And there are all sorts of views, and I'm not going to give you mine. But the point is that... This is a thing that creates confusion. It creates chaos. And you know, most of us have probably experienced some good things out of this lockdown phase. For some, it's been much harder than others, of course. Um, and, And there's probably a split feeling of wanting to go back to some sense of normality, but also wanting to retain the good stuff that's emerged through this period of time. But again, it's being stuck in the middle You know, the pandemic feels like we're stuck between what was before, what is now, and what will be once the full lockdown restrictions are lifted, and what will the world look like moving on from here. There's that. Um, There's the tragedy, the horrific tragedy of Madeleine McCann, which has come back online because of, you know, the emergence of the latest information. And, and as of today, it's, it's most likely that she was murdered. And, you know, absolute 13 years of just not knowing what's happened. So awful for the parents who have suffered horrific abuse at the hands of the press and probably others that, that just, you know, love to cast blame because we live in a beastly culture. How is the beast working through us. You know, we have got to be careful. I cannot begin to imagine the pain that Kate and Jerry McGann must have uh, experienced losing their four-year-old daughter. I have a daughter who's three and a half. Just, it is unthinkable. And then to put on top of that, that they may have done it? Who are we? Sorry, I get quite angry, as you can see. This is the beast alive and at work in our culture today. It is not, you know, it's finished at one level, but we've got to open our eyes to the reality that, yes, we are called to bring the kingdom of God into a beastly kind of environment. That is the call on us. But the beastly stuff is still happening. And sometimes, knowingly or unknowingly, we partner with it. Of course, Madeleine McGann is one story out of hundreds and thousands. And that one hit, you know, the news for different reasons. For the timing of it and for the way the parents have responded, etc. And for the way that the press just got behind it. And there's always in the summer, typically, a story that emerges Um, when there's not much else news about some form of abduction. You know, but it's happening all the time. It's vile. And this beastliness that operates in some, uh, when it's given free reign, is vile. The beast is on the rampage. I am not trying to bring glory or gratification or anything like that to the enemy, but I am trying to highlight a reality that we must be aware of, that not everything is perfect. It's so obvious. And when we start to think about the end times, we know that this stuff is going to happen. 
We know that persecution is going to come. And I'm not going to go much into end times today, but I do want to say this. Um, You know, there is so much cookie teaching about the end times. It's like, I don't know where some people get this stuff from. It's crazy. And when we read Revelation, we have got to understand that the language is metaphorical. The language in Daniel is metaphorical about beasts, etc., etc., about the little horn on the goat, which is Antiochus IV. It's metaphorical because it paints and points to the realities of what is going on. But so much of the end times teaching that's out there is all about the, um, the literal interpretation of the language that uh, John is using in the writing of Revelation. And we get sidetracked and we lose track of the main thing. We get so enamored, and maybe this isn't something for you, but for some of us it probably is. We get so enamored by the sort of um, the mysteries around the end time and people start talking about the Illuminati or the Freemasons or all this conspiracy theories that are underneath so much stuff and has emerged a lot out of this lockdown. You know, and yet here we are, the people of God, living in the here and now, called to bring heaven to earth now. And when we get distracted by the end times, and trying to work out what's going on when we know we will not know the time of his return. No one will know because he will come like a thief in the night. And we will not know, but we need to be ready. And when we get distracted by all the details of the end times, what happens is we lose sight of the very thing it's about We lose sight of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's what the whole thing is about. It's what Revelation is all about. And they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony. And that's the central verse it hinges on. We cannot be distracted by all the stuff. You know, I can probably say this with some level of accuracy, I don't think there is one teaching that has emerged that probably nails what's going to happen at the end times. We've got to live with mystery because God has implanted mystery on purpose into the prophetic culture and um, apocalyptic scripture. It's meant to be shrouded with mystery because He wants to tell us things that we can only know after they've happened. Oh, that was about that. The whole point is, our focus has to be on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The pattern I mentioned earlier, humans become violent beasts when they don't acknowledge God's kingdom. Now, we might just want to apply that to beastly kings, But you only have to go onto Facebook or Twitter to see beastly behavior. You only have to open the newspaper to look at the beastly ways that someone who uh, tells their story about being abused um, is treated with beastliness because of one of her views. I'm talking about J.K. Rowling. You know, and we love to judge 
the beast is at work. We love to feel that we are better than somebody else. The beast is at work. That's the pattern that emerges when humans become, uh, sorry, humans, when we take our eyes off the kingdom, a beastly behavior emerges. And I think we can all be guilty of it at times. But the pattern is not the only thing because all apocalyptic scripture comes with promise. And the promise is that one day God will confront the beast. We read it in Revelation. One day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. Now that is still to come. There are aspects of that reality right now in our world. And we are called to partner with God, to partner with the Father, to partner with Jesus, to bring heaven to earth. And we must never lose sight of it. But in all of the chaos that we see around us, and it seems to have emerged in quite a big way over the last few months, we cannot take our eyes off that which is most important. And I want to leave you with that verse. The, verse 32. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. We are caught in the middle. But we are called to stand firm and take action. What does that mean? Well, I can't answer that for you. I can say it means never losing sight of the King of Kings. I can say that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the the word of our testimony and his testimony. But it's different for each one of us because it comes out of knowing God. It comes out of our relationship with our Father in heaven. And if there's anything else that we take away from this lockdown, it's that we press in in whatever way we can to building our connection with our Father in heaven. And today on Father's Day, we want to do that more than ever. I'm, uh, I've got to stop, but let's pray as we draw this um, to a close. I should say there'll be extra hope next week as we move to chapter 12, um, where the real hope emerges at the end of the book of Daniel. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your interaction in human life. Thank you for the blood of the Lamb. Thank you that it's he that it's all about. And I pray in the mix of everything that's going on, whatever our interests lie in, however we are interpreting current events, may we never lose sight of the reality that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that he is the Prince of Peace. And so Prince of Peace, we invite you 
into whatever spaces we find ourselves in as we're listening or watching right now. We invite you, speak to us. Show us how you would have us respond in our households of faith, in our own individual lives. That as we navigate our way of being caught in the middle of two different kingdoms, as we seek to partner with you in bringing heaven to earth and restoring creation to its original design, may we hear your voice so clearly so that we can move forward, standing firm and taking action. So that we may be a people who live with faithfulness, with honour and with resilience that whatever emerges in the coming years, we would be faithful and recognize the victory that's already be won, been won and live from that place, seeking to transform that which looks like beastliness to that which looks like the Prince of Peace and the Kingdom of Heaven. We are sad in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, for being with us through our Sunday service. May you have the most amazing week and uh, we'll see you soon. God bless.